Hi, listeners. We want to tell you about some upcoming live events where you can join Kate and I. We're excited to announce that our upcoming Tend Her 3.0 program is happening. This is our third year in a row where we've received a grant that allows us to offer this program for free for up to 1,000 women. Our theme this year is resilience. We've realized these fast moving times that are filled with lots of complexity require resilience. So in this four week online program, we're gonna be learning the science of resiliency, as well as all the tools that we need to strengthen our resiliency muscle. Registration for this opens October 4, and the program starts October 23. In addition, we are so excited to announce that this year we're adding to the Tender program an in-person Women's Resiliency Summit on Friday, November 17th from 9 to 4 p.m. It's going to be held at Little Lights on the Lane. Registration for this event will open October 23rd, the first day of the Tend Her 3.0 program. If you want to be first to know, follow us on Instagram at Kate Moreland Coaching, at Dr. Yoga Mama, and at Tend Her Wild. Last but certainly not least, consider joining Kate and I for a full live and in-person week of rewilding in the wilds of Costa Rica on yoga and meditation retreat, May 11th to the 18th this coming 2024. Space is limited, but for more information on this event and how to register, go to www.oneyogaglobal.com. That's O-N-E, yogaglobal.com. Who were you before you lost your wild self? That's what we're helping you explore on the Tend Her Wild podcast. Through questions and tools around how best to listen to your inner voice, rewild ourselves, and live the most authentic life where we thrive instead of survive. I'm Betsy. And I'm Kate. And we're so glad you've joined us for this episode. podcast listeners, we want to give you an update on some really cool upcoming events that Kate and I have going on. We are thrilled to announce that we are doing another Tend Her program starting this October. Tend Her is a free four-week online program for women on self-compassion. It started, uh, we did our first one this summer of 2021 via a grant that allowed us to offer it free to a thousand women. And word got out about the power of the program. So we did it again with a new theme in 2022. And now we're calling it Tend Her 3.0. It's happening a third time this October, 2024. In addition to the four-week online program, we're also offering a day-long in-person event at the conclusion of the program. This year's theme is resilience. Why resilience? We've all been through a lot in the past few years and learning the science and practices of resilience are essential in these times. Resilience is something we can all develop and grow within ourselves. And we believe it is especially important for women who happen to be the backbone for families and communities. So mark your calendar. Registration for Tend Her 3.0 Resilience will open October 4 with the course beginning October 23. Hello, Tender Wild podcast listeners. 
In today's episode, we have a very special guest that we're so excited to introduce to all of you. Her name is Ellis Elliott. She's a published author and poet, dance teacher, and yogi. She's blended a family of six grown sons and lives in Juno Beach, Florida with her husband, Tim, and dog, Mabel. She's a facilitator of online writing groups called Bewilderness, which of course we love that name. <laughs> Bewilderness Writing teaches online adult ballet as well. She is a writer for an after school, teaches ballet and writing for an after school arts education program. She has an MFA from Queens University and is a contributing writer for the Southern Review of Books and is an editor and workshop instructor for the Dewdrop Contemplative Journal. You have been published, Ellis, in numerous publications. Her first chapbook, Break in the Field, was published this summer and was a finalist for the Two Sylvia's Press Wilder Poetry Book Prize, which that is amazing. I mean, it came out two two months ago, right? I mean, or just a month ago. Yeah. So amazing. And we are so thrilled to see you again because we saw you in Iceland at the retreat, which was the birthplace of this podcast. It was after we got back from Iceland that Kate and I were talking about that wilding experience we had in Iceland. And that's where this podcast kind of was born from. So we love that you were there with us and had your own rewilding experience in Iceland. Absolutely. What an adventure. Yeah. What an exotic. And I've traveled a lot, luckily, with my husband, Tim. And that, what a place to. Yeah. What do you remember about that week for you? What did it mean for you? Oh, my goodness. I, I remember it was a deep dive into a, a space that a space, not only an environment uh, externally, but also an internal dive of all the different landscapes, whether it was cold and raining and flat and moonlight and moonlike geography versus the warm inside of a sauna or a yoga class. And all of that felt like it kind of came together inside me as I tried to understand myself and how I kind of connected with this extremely different existence that these folks had, um, mm-hmm. that the that Icelandic people and the language and the experiences we had, it was really revelatory in a lot of ways. Uh, see, I love your poetic language already. No. Revelatory. <laughs> no. Can we just say that again? Revelatory. I love that word. And I also feel like that was what happened for Kate and I, that it was a revelatory experience. Similar because of the landscape, because of watching another culture and how they live really did shed a lot of light on both of our lives did. about changes we needed to make and wanted to make. And so it's really interesting because we've never talked with you. How, yes. how was Iceland for you? What did it do for yeah. you? And I so. love your description of the contrast and yeah. how that transferred into your own being, because that is, that's what we talk about. The light and the dark of that place is so obvious once you're there. And when you experience it, you're, the contrast is just so great. Yes, yes. It's a big place for spiritual growth, it feels mm-hmm. like to me. 
Absolutely. And I think what your experience afforded me was, as opposed to tourist travel, which is primarily what I do, it, it allowed that um, that other half of the experience in the classes we had with you and the different offerings. It wasn't just go, go, go to the different sites, but you had time to sort of incorporate that um, yeah. into your body. Yeah, there was processing time, which normally on a vacation yeah. you don't have. Yeah. Yes, yes. So true. Well, we uh, have a feeling that this Icelandic trip may, you know, move through this whole conversation today. But Kate and I were reflecting, we both read your latest book of poetry and were astounded by the depth of it, how you describe people and things and places um, in ways that the average human can't do, which is why I think we need poetry because it you know, I related to so much of what you said, even though I've had completely different experiences in my life that shared humanity. Um, but what we're really curious to start with, and this is the question we always start with, and so much of it came up in your book, is your first 10 years, even though you didn't talk about it as your first 10 years, you talked about your mom and your dad and experiences um, that have shaped you. And so we would love to hear from you because it does feel like such a bedrock of where we right. end up or how we move through life is those first 10 years. We would love to hear you talk about um, your first 10 years and how they shaped you. Absolutely. Yes. And first of all, thank you for the kind compliments. That's uh, some for someone to read my book is a huge compliment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, uh, and then to like it is, is even better. Um, my first 10 years, I um, was born in North Carolina and then lived in Georgia for five years before then starting first grade in Fayetteville, Arkansas from uh, first grade to college. Um, and uh, primarily my childhood was one of solo play. I was very much kept to myself, I was. I kept very much to myself, whether it was um, in the, what I called the creek in front of the house I grew up on, which was really just a glorified drainage ditch that ran down the hill. Um, but I spent hours there. I spent hours hitting a tennis ball against the side of the garage and talking to myself. I was also talking to myself at the creek ditch and then playing Barbies, which, uh, <laughs> We just, yeah. we just did an episode on Barbie. It was fabulous. Yes. Yeah. I too played with it until it was probably a little bit too long and inappropriate, huh? but I think I was 14. So yes, yeah. I loved my Barbies. And um, so, yeah, it was a lot of independent play, but what I loved about that experience and actually the Barbie movie prompted me to think about it a little more was that nobody sits down with you and teaches you how to play with your Barbies. It's, mm. it's purely your own creation out of your own That's imagination. Very true. It sort of taught me how to be in the world, even though I might have been nine at the time. But I could Barbie was most mostly me, but she could also be the bully girl at school, or she could be the teacher, whoever your parent. Yep. 
somebody that you needed to practice with. And I feel like that was um, a, a, a big part of my childhood was that sort of solo playing. And, and I did grow up with a very um, strong work ethic from my parents. So my parents, my dad was a history professor and my mom was a nurse and um, my dad grew up on a tobacco farm and my mom grew up um, in the mountains of East Tennessee. And it was really your value in the world was really predicated on what you produced the amount of work you did and that is what defined you so that's kind of the the track i set myself on as well um good student um and did well in school but an early sign of my trajectory was that i I got uh, little notes on my report cards that say, um, sometimes Ellis is um, overwhelmed and um, super sensitive. And then she says she doesn't feel very good. Mm. <laughs> so she asked to be excused. Yes. So I do you thought, remember that? Do you remember I, those times? Um, yes, actually, I do. Um, so it makes sense for the person I feel like I've become to kind of those two um, plates, geographic mm -hmm. plates, I kind of think of the ground moving and, and the tension between um, the geography of who I am being sort of sen very sensitive on one side and also practical, nose to the grindstone, get her done, do what you're supposed Your to work. do and trying to get those two together. That feels masculine and feminine. It feels like the mix. Yeah. And I probably had similar notes on my report card, Ellis. And I and I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious how that sensitivity and empathicness in the world shaped also your creative life. It seems like so many creatives have a very sensitive nature. They feel the world in deeper ways, which is probably why you can write so beautifully and you can get to the heart of you know, poetry is really expressing such depth. Do you think that's that's a part of why you're such a creative force? I do. Well, thank you again. Um, I I do. I think my the the languages of creativity are have been my way of understanding of befriending the world which can be completely overwhelming. So I use my creativity, whether it's movement or dance or um, writing, in order to make sense of it all, to attempt to. So certainly that, that felt world um, has a huge impact on my creativity. I have to, there's an urgency mm. to, and I think we all feel it and because we all have creativity and we all have a world within us, um, an urgency to get that out of us yes. yeah. through the body out of us and whatever, however it comes out. Um, so you've really, mind. you've really worked with people to, to unleash theirs. Like as you've, you know, that's really your life's work at or what it currently is uh, today, which taking it back to your first 10 years was all about you 
you, you seem like you were creative in, in how you played and how you were, you know, Talking alone. your Barbies. And- yes. And creating your own little worlds kind of. And so I see that through line with, with what you're helping others do to unleash their own creativity today. And work things out. Like you were working things out with your Barbies. So totally. now like you're working your, your latest book of poetry, you're working things out for your yes. writing. It's the, it's like the same yes. thing. It is. It's exactly the same thing. And I, I know there's nothing selfless about it. It's completely selfish because I am, I am doing what I need to do through these different channels. So was writing and dance big for you during your, you know, school years and growing up, were you writing and and dancing ballet? Was that big for you when, when you were younger? It was, I think it was because I was sort of steered that way. Um, as my, I also had a brief tenure as a cheerleader, but that, that was seen as much. Me too. Yeah. That was. <laughs> right I got her face. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit too frivolous. So when my girlfriends all went on into drill team and cheerleading and fun stuff with popular crowds and all that. I I went down the path of, yeah, braces, pimples, and ballet. That's kind (laughs) of where I was. (laughs) But yeah, I did, I did dance and I did seem to really stick most with the ballet, which has been my first love. And then the writing world definitely was coming out then too. Um, and it, that also, that thread, the dance, not so much in college as much. I had to do that off campus and, but the, the writing definitely came through as an English major in college. I I got to write, but then after that, it was a, a different trajectory of marriage and children and, um, finding other less creative ways to stifle the intensity of myself. Yeah. I I have to pause at the the conversation about ballet because one of the poems you wrote, my favorite poem in the book, I had many, I, I highlighted a bunch, but I'm not going to say it correct. The Nureyev at the Orpheum Memphis. Yes, Nureyev. Yes. I don't Nureyev. know if that's right either. I, I just, I think that's, everybody says it right. So yes. Oh my goodness. I could just picture, is this one we should have her read? Maybe? Yeah. Would you be willing would to you read? read this one? Is this sure. one of your favorites? Yeah, well, it is now. <laughs> it was so I could picture you there as a twenty-year-old, mm-hmm. and then, and maybe it's because we'll read it first, and then we'll yeah, then we'll analyze it. Does that sound okay? <laughs> that sounds good. Nereev at the Orpheum, Memphis, nineteen eighty-seven. Two men sat in the row in front of me near the aisle. One in a sapphire cardigan had his arm around the other, pulling him close as they both sobbed. We were watching Nureyev, who was nearing 50 then and known as one of the greatest ballet dancers of all time. I was young, just out of college, and didn't understand their tears. I thought it could be because the famous Russian defector was past his prime. 
his coil and spring less precise, and the flagrant fling of his crimson cape imperceptibly off-tempo. Or it might have been the nearness of beauty, the push and pull of legend etched in every articulated muscle. Now, as my body begins its own slow defection, I sit between those two men. I rest my head on the one free shoulder as we all feel the cape of our aging bodies begin to slip to the scratched wooden stage floor and into a puddle of what lies between beauty and loss. It is a place so beautiful, I weep. Oh. Alice, oh. I mean, I am not a ballet dancer, nor, but like to read that and to relate so much to these two men not getting it at 20 you you, you don't get that your body's going to age and change and disappear and then later you sitting between them the image of that the symbolism of that oh yeah. just spoke to me so deeply thank you and has dance continued to i mean you obviously are still doing some dance, yes. your teaching and your, how does it show up for you today? Well, um, first, if I can just backtrack a little, uh, those men crying yeah. in front of me, I think, you know, so much of our expression, whatever we do um, creatively starts with a little image or a nugget. It's like how I have that little image, image of those men, 30, yeah, yeah. 40, 40 years ago, yeah. but yeah. And so, um, and I think those are the, the, the moments that deserve to be fleshed out, yeah, whatever way snapshots of life. Yeah. yeah. Your book very much feels like that. It feels like these snapshots that you bring to life and like you said, make sense of like yeah. that. I, I understand you so much better and the book better having heard you describe that because that is what you're doing is bringing life to these almost moments. singular moments. Um, and you're wrestling with them and you're creating meaning around them. Exactly. Trying. It's, it's all just a grab, you know, trying to do the best to feel a gigantic yarn ball of trying to disentangle and figure it out. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of life. Yeah. That's kind of and I love that you made sense of those two men in front of you crying that that memory stayed with you and it didn't make sense at the time. You couldn't understand. And then 30 years down the road, when you're more their age, suddenly you get it. I mean, I, it just is like a circle moment. And I don't know why it, it touched me so deeply, but I guess that's the power of poetry, right? Yes, I hope Never so. danced a ballet dance in my <laughs> life, nor even seen probably a live one. And yet that I was like, oh, I'm with her. I feel that. I get that. Good. Good. It's so worth thank it. you for putting it to words. <laughs> uh -huh. So I'm struck that you are a, a parent to six sons. I know. Doesn't that sound impressive? I know. I but think it was... might be impressive, Alice, <laughs> not is. just sound. Yeah. I, so tell us a little bit about, you know, picking up after college and getting married and you had yeah. your own sons. I did. I had three of my own and um, 
started a dance studio when we lived in Mount Vernon, Iowa. Um, that was, uh, I started it the year before I got divorced. So it was a little bit of a traumatic birth, but it, it came to be, and I'm super proud of that dance studio that's still going strong and in, oh, in Mount Vernon. But um, yes, I had these three wonderful boys and now young men. And then I um, uh, got divorced, was single and running that studio for about seven years. And then I remarried in 2011 and um, we have three boys each and my husband is a widower and had twins at the time that were 11 and an older son that was 13 and my boys were approximately the same age because my first two were 18 months apart and then my youngest was three years younger so they're all between right now they're all between 26 and 31. Okay. Um, so and one of my stepsons is severely disabled and he had a brain hemorrhage the day after he was born and um, they did not know there was no quick label or diagnosis for Julian and so they did not know my husband Tim and his late wife Susan any kind of prognosis future for Julian and had to go through each of those steps stones of development, developmental rites of passage that he did not pass. So he is 26 now and um, he does, is unable to talk or walk or feed himself. And so I was in my mid forties um, when I met Julian and I had never met a person like him in my life and had had to learn it was a steep learning curve for the special needs world but it was more uh, a relationship between julian and i at like one i had never experienced before mm -hmm. and that's the name of the book it was a break in the field it's a break it's when you encounter something like this, whether it's a person with disability, this severe, or it could be any other major event of your life, it shifts your perception of wow. the way you see everything else. And that's what Julian did for me. There was a, there was an Alice before Julian and yes. there's an Alice after Julian. Absolutely. And significantly different people based on all that you went through and all that you learned from and continue, I assume, to learn from Julian. Oh, yes. Yes. And no, can I just no. pause and say, uh, six boys, you started a, a marriage and a new life when boys are teenagers <laughs> and there's six of them and it's a new marriage and whoa, yeah. Three just lost their mother. Three just lost their mother. It was, it's a lot to take on. 
No wonder there was such a transformation for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it's not, it was not pretty. It was not a ballet dance by any um, stretch of the imagination. It's a, it's a messy and you, un, you know, peel the layers off even now, you know, to realize what everyone was feeling and going through when at the time we were just putting one foot Survival. in front of the Yes. But he is, Julian is such a paramount um, person in your writing. And there's, and I don't know if, if you have a favorite phrase or stanza or, or piece that um, you'd be willing to share with listeners about Julian, because I feel like your heart and, and, and his heart are connected in this work. And so I would love to to see if you, we could convey that something to the listeners. Um, I do have a poem. I hadn't um, thought about it until this moment, which I appreciate you helping me find it. Um, and it's called Easy Fix, which I, it's very much in every man's language, <laughs> um, the truth of my experience with Julian, um, mm. especially early on when Julian has no affect, he doesn't laugh or cry. He makes sounds and, um, but there's no sense of recognition, mm -hmm. um, from him of us. Although we like to think we see half a grin and that he does know it's us, but so much of the reality is what we put on him, how we yeah. perceive yeah. what he thinks versus what's true, because we can't know what's yeah. true. But this poem is called Easy Fix. This is what I'm looking for, the super brainometer to produce a ticker tape ex explanation of him. Use soothing words, please, like lullaby and sugared violets, not like hemorrhage and thalamus bleed, although they have a slight allure. He has no smile or grimace to illuminate my way, only clear, hazel eyes, one fixed, one following. May I have your attention for a minute? I ask the fixed eye. I have a few questions. The answer is clear burnished copper with a jade green sheen. And what I, I was so moved by um, is that this has clearly been, if you would look at it on the surface, a relationship where you've given so much in terms of care and feeding tubes. You you write about this and getting him to the school that he needs to go to and putting on his socks. And yet what I think I had never really thought about or considered until I read your work is that you've actually also received so much from this, this human being who, yeah, has no affect and can't speak to you. And you have no idea what's going through their mind and yet you've received so much. I mean, that was, it's such a flip of the switch for me. Um, and can you speak to that? Uh, because it, 
Yeah. I can hardly fathom it in a way. Cause I, I'm not in your shoes. You're right. Well, help yeah. me fathom it, but could, you've received yeah. so much from you receive such deep teachings from this person. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're sort of left to your own, you know, uh, to, on your own with Julian, because what are you going to, um, receive from this relationship? Well, on his end, nothing. So, so what, and, but more of it, it's more about what, to me, it just went straight to the center of the matter with what it means to be a human. Mm. What is it that makes us human? Is it this shell of a body? Is it, you know, the mind? What if the mind operates at a nine month old level forever? And then really what it comes down to is that we acknowledge his existence. We love on him. We do the best we can to give him visual stimulation and his caregivers as well. It's not just us, very important to add, but that that's love. So his sustenance is love. And, mm -hmm. and you know, that he's not tasting the world. He's not processing the world, but he is being supported and by this love by this emotion from his family and his caregivers and many people it's it's such a eye-opening experience to realize everyone wants to project like i said before onto him kind of this well this is what you need to do have you tried this and this and this and you just keep going yes until you say who are we trying this for ourselves or for is it really for julian's benefit in the end and it's just the greatest mystery i've ever mm, so much mystery of. right so much mystery yeah. i had such a response to your connection with his eyes and the jade the color hazel jade green the the fixed eye and the one you know there yeah. so when i think about eyes being kind of the window to the soul it felt very much like that that as a human connecting to a human that the eyes are very and then seeing images I've, i got to see some photos of the yes. two of you and on your instagram and just you know that seemed very very much like a connection point the eyes yes yes and, you know, when I talk about folks trying to connect, um, I'm first time, and especially in the early years, it was like, <laughs> I'm going to play this music, and then I'm going to play that, and then I'm going to get that didgeridoo, and then I'm going <laughs> to play, so then I'm going to do sign language, then I'm going to get these, um, you know, PVC pipes and put them together and hang things from them. I mean, you just look for any way in. Yeah. And then you realize and live with and accept that there might not be a way, a way in and and embrace it or maybe everything you're doing is a way in right like right it all, all is the things you're doing might be impacting uh him yeah. in some way that you'll never know there's right. a surrender there's a surrender to yeah. that not yeah. knowing for sure your final poem i mean i had so many favorites in this book but your final poem about 
um, the first phrase, you may have a holy being on your hands, my Buddhist minister friend tells me. Yes. Um, how did that shape um, or comfort or what did that do when you had this friend kind of say, you know, he may be a really holy being and he's here to teach you things. Yes. Well, I was that, like blown uh, away by that too. concept. <laughs> right. That he had passed through all of this, you all know, the tests or the, all the tests, all this karma. external value and all that. And he's like, mm, I've done yeah. that. I am at this enlightened, wonderful place. And you know, there, there's great comfort in that, especially coming from a friend that I truly trust and know that she is deep in her understanding of the Buddhist, um, uh, the Buddhist way. And so that for her to see that, for her to think about him, yeah, which is, first of all, the, the biggest deal, you know, to think about him in that deep way and then offer this alternative reality which we would like to live in a lot of the time with julian and the possibilities of who and what is going on inside him um was just so lovely and freeing yeah so how has that shaped you know this this i feel like this second <clears throat> second life if i can say um for you in the second marriage family dynamics how has that really informed how you work with uh, women and and children um, in your work on how through writing and ballet? How has that changed maybe what you're delivering and how you're interacting with the people you're you're inspiring? Yes, well, that that working through all of the above, all of the things that cause, you know, um, the hurdles, so to speak, that come in our way as we meet, you know, midlife. And um, I think just that ex those experiences inform how I present what I teach and also just give me such a freedom. There is such, it's like, hallelujah, finally, I don't give a shit. You know, and I can do whatever I want, say whatever I want. Now, I wouldn't say that with my young teenagers that I teach, um, but I, I do with my adults in the bewilderness writing. It is so wonderful to ha finally feel comfortable in my own skin through these life experiences and through not to feel, you know, to allowing myself to feel, to allowing it on the page, to dancing it out, not being able to speak it, all that stuff, um, to being able to um, bring that to the table with the people that I'm writing with, allowing that. And I am a part of these writing. If I'm writing or dancing, they see the real me that can't remember after the first eight counts you know, it's like, what's the next eight counts? Because I already forgot uh, two <laughs> seconds ago. Or uh, writing, I'm, you know, I just put the real me down there. And mm -hmm. and that invites that intimacy, I think. Yeah. Well, and that authenticity. It's oh. the wild. It's the wild it's the woman. Wild. And do, yeah. you, do you think that um, it was, I, I have a little bit of theory, and Kate and I talk about this, that 
although we've interviewed some very young women who were like, oh yeah, you've already found your inner wild. You've returned to that or you've never lost it. But do you think it was midlife for you and so much of these challenging experiences that reconnected you to your wild and to that true voice? Like, I love the idea that you can just say what you need to say now. You don't have to hold back. I mean, was it midlife that that brought you back to your wild? Totally. Yes, yeah. I was very much a late bloomer in every way. So that it d- that follows along the the path I've already been on. But yes, it's like it blew open. And then, you know, death and my parents dying and, you know, Julian along the way and all of those things. And then your body betrays you. Mm-hmm. And all of those, you know, just that slow accumulation allowed this newfound freedom, which I'm still freedom. stepping into. You yeah. know, I feel like it's a fabulous chapter and I'm grateful, so grateful every day. Yeah. And I feel like in some ways that's what everyone is seeking is freedom. Like I, it's like one of the core tenets. It's even interesting how it's so much a part of our country, <laughs> the idea of freedom, but it's like that internal freedom. Like for years when I practice yoga or meditate, that's always been my intention and I never knew where it came from. I want freedom. I want freedom. I want freedom. So it, it's, it's interesting to hear you really speak about how you've landed in it. And you feel yeah. so much great gratitude every day that you are living from a more free, expansive place than you ever were at any other time in your life. I mean, it gives me so much hope too for <laughs> the aging process too, right? As we continue to yeah. age, we have more opportunity to live in freedom. Yeah. And it, I've been on, you know, I've been on the tracks trying to stay as, you know, the good girl doing the right thing as hard as I can until you finally just gradually push out and take a little detour and then get back on. Then the detour lasts a little longer and it, it feels so good. It feels so good to be able to, to go there, but I'm not, you know, I'm not ready to fly the freak flag completely yet. (laughs) You're not fully in the detour all the time, Alice, but you like to take journeys there is what I mean. Yeah. Visit. I think that's, I think that's really good. For our listeners too, and as I'm sitting here thinking, it's not a wake up one day and you step outside the box and you are out. It is a, it's a return. It's, it's, it's a, it's a journey of stepping out and maybe pulling back, taking more risks. Not a little farther, yeah. coming back. So there, there's a, that that's such a good reminder that it, you're not, we're not all seeking a, a day or a moment where it just shifts it's an evolution and a journey. And so, but as you start to take steps and take that detour, you get braver. Absolutely. Next time the step's a little bigger. And yeah, so I love that analogy. Mm -hmm. Taking that risk, you know, you have to take that little step and then take a bigger one. But yeah. you're not going to go anywhere if you stay in that nice little comfort zone. Oh, I know. I know that comfort <laughs> zone is so comfortable, but there's oh, just no growth yes. there. Right there. Oh, I don't want to leave. It's so cozy. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but it's funny how life bumps you out of the comfort zone and then you choose whether or not you're willing to take the detour <laughs> or if you're like, oh, never mind. I'm just going back to the... Yeah. 
yeah. comfortable couch. That's right. That's <laughs> Watch right. a little more Netflix. and Yeah. yeah. No, that's where I'd much rather be most mm. of the time. It's such an honest answer. And yes. I think, I think many relate to that idea. Can you share with us the, the cover of your book? I have to say, I'm a big like wine labels to me. I buy wine from the label, like books. I love the images, the covers, your book cover and uh, is breathtaking. It's oh. there's so much, so much detail and beauty and it's a dollhouse, right? It's my dollhouse. Can you it's tell a real us? one? Is it That's mine? Yes. I had some, wow. um, I have a lifelong love of miniatures, all things miniature. So I um, take, I like old doll houses that I take and refurbish. And so this one had just had a re new redecoration and I was lucky enough, and thank you for allowing me to talk about it, to have a publisher that jumped with my idea. I said, this is like Barbie world. It's idealized world where you uh, a dollhouse to me represents an ideal world where i'm going to have everything and the please. way i want it mm. pretend i live in there but then you stick a wheelchair in there yep yep and that changes everything a, a wheelchair by steep steps going upstairs and and so i was really pleased to be able to put my own mark on on the um on the cover and that's what it meant. The shift, the break in the field is this ideal world of dollhouse land and reality of a wheelchair crashing in the middle of the room. Yeah. 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 And gosh, again, like I, the way you word things in this book, Again, I've not had these experiences, but yet we all have these experiences. This idea of creating this idealized version where we believe what our, our life should look like in an ideal form, but it never turns out that way. And for you, it's a wheelchair. For other people, it's a diagnosis or it's a, yes. it's a death or it, right. It, it's like we, we all played Barbie. We all have yes. this idea of what the perfect ideal situation is. And then it never goes that way. And right. then we have to deal with our humanity and all the feels all that that mess. of the mess. Yeah. 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 And what the experiences that we're going to, that we have throughout life, hard, difficult, traumatic, how they change us and how they help us grow. And so that break in the field is such your title is like, that is what it is. It's a, it's this break. And then you be you you move in a in a new direction you become you know yeah. just like and becoming i'm curious a break in the field is it do you consider that the energetic field um a physical field like plowing <laughs> it's definitely um the energetic field yeah the shift okay. in your perceptual field so yeah. that's an energetic field to me and it just comes from a quote from a a book about disability that said any kind of um, contact you have with disability creates this shift in your perception about the body's precariousness, its open-endedness. And so, yes, to me, it's very much a shift, and especially for women, I think, because we have very specific 
tracks we're supposed to go down and ways we're supposed to behave and all the supposed tos and shoulds and um yep. the when the curtain gets lifted and you realize I don't have to be that way. I don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. It is a real shift in um, your whole life, I think. Yeah. That is the essence of this podcast. And I think what Kate and I have been on a journey talking to people about is exactly that break in the field. Yeah. <laughs> because we are all conditioned to believe we have to be a certain way or we have to right. do it. You stay in the good girl track or yes. good grades or stay married or you know, dress your kids this way or have them go to this school. And then when the realization hits or we start to rethink it that, oh, I I don't have to follow all these rules or do it in this particular way. um, It is a major break and it's scary. Yes. (laughs) And it's overwhelming. And yet what you just said a, a bit ago, if there's an end result, it's freedom. Yes. Yes. And just even if you can get a taste of it, you know, it doesn't, like I said, I'm not ready to run down the street naked just yet, but I but just wait listeners that <laughs> on the list. That's right. That's right. But just to feel the, the, um, a little bit of it is such a, a gift. Yeah. Well, and I, I want to honor that the work you do with women on writing, I think writing you know, your inner critic, the, the voices in your head, those messages, writing is such a great avenue to access that and to free yourself from that. And I also think the way you're, you do creative writing workshops with women, right? Open writing nights where they're writing, you're individually writing, but you're sharing. Yes. That there's safety and, and to do that collectively is so powerful because you start to feel less alone. And then as one woman takes a step forward, it encourages the next woman and, and beyond. So you're holding space for women, I think, to rewild (laughs) the writing workshops you're doing. Yeah, that's really all there is to it. I'm not, I'm not doing anything but holding space, which is a great gift for me. And, and then to watch these women who have many times have said, I've never said that before. And, and you first go through putting it on the page, which is powerful in and of itself to write it down. Some people are clicking on the computer. That's fine. But there's something about the kinesthetic act of writing that you then look at your words and then to give voice to it. That's a powerful process, and it's only, I think, available if you do feel some sense of safety and security in your little circle, and um, it's a real gift to me because all I have to do is kind of uh, give some rules and, and watch it roll out, mm. and that, that part of creativity, I think people realize, the women in my groups, that they do have something worth something to say and it's worth hearing and they are just as valid in what they have to say as anyone else. Mm-hmm. And we all want to be seen and heard. So to give women a chance to be seen and heard, yeah. how can you tell our listeners how they might be able to get involved in one of your oh. writing groups? <laughs> well, I just 
might be able to do this. My um, my website is called bewildernesswriting.com and I run um, six-week workshops or six-week sessions, I should say, and no experience is required. It's a very simple process where I read a poem, give you jump off lines, you can choose to use it or not, um, and then you write, free write, which is the attempt to keep your pen on the page without stopping, and you do the best you can. I tell you when time's up, and then you um, read what you've written, and that the next one begins in the middle of September, and the uh, the other website that offers it is through the dewdrop.org. So thank you for letting me yeah. give that a plug. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you are, Ellis, truly a wild woman. And I want to give a shout out to another wild woman who connected us, Kathleen. Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. Thank you. Love Kathleen. She's a loyal listener. And um, yeah, she she brought you to Iceland. She did. She And helped us make this connection again. So yes. Thank you, Kathleen. Definition of a loyal friend. Yeah, she is. So we always like to end uh, with talking about or asking you the question from the infamous book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. They talk about the few precious doors into the world of the wild woman. So if you have a deep scar, that is a door. If you have an old, old story, that is a door. If you love the sky and the water so much, you can almost not bear it. That is a door. If you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life, that is a door. So, Ellis, which door do you think you took into your life as a wild woman? I think I took, if I love the sky and the water so much, I can't bear it. Mm-hmm. And your writing would reflect It's a typical that. poet, right? Yeah, like nature. You, yeah, it speaks to you so deeply. Yeah. Well, you are a lovely human and an amazing poet and writer, and I hope our, our listeners will Reach out and look for your new book. Which they can find on Amazon. That's right. You can find it on Amazon. And thank you so much for what you do for allowing this safe space, speaking of, for women to hear their stories through other people and um, have find some value and power through what you're giving. Thank you for that. Thank you. I do believe that... Um... Women speaking truth, being heard, finding voice is all uh, a big part of the healing of this planet. And so I'm so grateful that we're all doing the work in our own unique ways. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for this powerful conversation, Alice. We really adore you. Yes, we thank do. You, thank you so much. And I hope to join you someday soon. Yes. <laughs> Yay. And a thank retreat. You. Yes. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, listeners. We want to let you know that we have so much gratitude that you join us in these conversations every week. We want to continue to uplift and connect with women-owned businesses and businesses that are supporting women. So if you are one of those or have a recommendation for someone that may want to sponsor an episode, please have them reach out at tendherwild.com. If you are needing a reprieve 
from the fast pace of our modern life and want to connect a little deeper to yourself, I would love to see you at my next retreat, which happens to be in the Cork countryside of Ireland this September 24th through the 30th. You can join Kate, myself, and Kimberly at this retreat. And it's falling at a very auspicious time because we will just move through the fall equinox and we're moving to days that are shorter. So this is the perfect time of year to begin to draw inward, to slow down, and to really drink in the beauty, which will be rampant in Ireland in the fall, uh, to sort of support you and nurture you over the winter months. If you are curious about this retreat, you can check out more and how to register for this. We have, I believe, just a couple spots left uh, in the show notes. I can't wait. I can't either. Today's episode is sponsored by Kate Moreland Coaching and Heartland Yoga. As a coach, I am an advocate for authenticity and well-being for individuals, organizations, and communities. Through my coaching work, I like to help you connect to your authenticity. Whether you're an individual, a leader, or an organization, your creative power lies in your authenticity. Doing the work to understand your strengths and acknowledge the patterns and rocks that are in your way is the path to well-being. Whether it's your career or your relationship with yourself or others, transformative change begins within. You can reach me at katemorelandcoaching.com. Heartland Yoga has been in business for nearly 15 years. I founded this studio with the intention for it to be a safe place where people could come and heal. I also knew that I wanted a business that fostered community and connection. So if you are looking to deepen your yoga practice, heal from physical, emotional, mental wounds, or simply connect with people who are like-minded, Heartland Yoga is a place that we would love to welcome you into, whether it's online or in person. You can find out more information at www.heartlandyoga.com. And now the amazing singer-songwriter, Lissy Morris, with Wild West. Thanks for joining us today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. Come back and rewild with us again next week. The